1: Today's topic is all about IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. I'm so very excited about today's show because my special guest is Suzanne Parazzini. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Suzanne is a certified nutritional therapist, a qualified teacher, award-winning author, including three low FODMAP books, and has been a teacher and a coach her whole life. After having her life transformed by the low FODMAP diet and a bunch of changes she made to her lifestyle, She now dedicates her days to coaching others on how to implement the low FODMAP diet and eliminate their IBS symptoms once and for all. She lives in New Zealand with her husband in a house overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Suzanne, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of it.
1: So Suzanne, I think a good place to start with this topic is um, how common is IBS? What are the symptoms? Um, how do they assess for IBS or test for it?
2: Okay, so
1: IBS
2: is pretty pre- prevalent actually. It's 10 to 15% worldwide and they think it's more like 20% in the Western world have IBS. Now, the the symptoms are typically bowel movements, which are not considered normal. Either you are on the side of diarrhea or on the side of constipation, or you could have the mixed type, which means you swing between the two. Now, other symptoms are bloating. That's practically common to everybody, bloating, a feeling of excess gas, maybe pain, some cramping. So, difficulty after eating, and that can, of course, last for quite a long period once you've eaten the, the wrong food. What was the last part of
1: the question? <laughs> um, I know assessing for IBS, it's really uh, yes. a checklist of, uh, it's called the Rome 3 cr- criteria.
2: Yes, that's right. And, but basically, IBS is diagnosed, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Once they've tested for everything else, like for IBDs, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or colitis, etc. And they can't find anything because with IBS there is nothing physiologically wrong. They can't see anything. So once they've excluded everything else, with blood tests, dual tests, colonoscopies, etc., and but your symptoms continue, then they normally give a diagnosis of IBS.
1: Can you speak a little bit about the hydrogen breath test?
2: Yes, the hydrogen breath test used to be a a great way to see if you were reacting to some of the FODMAP groups. They can only test for lactose, fructose, and sorbitol. They don't test for the other groups. So you don't get a complete picture from it anyway anyway. But unfortunately, recently there was research done on the fructose part of the test that shows that it's not a valid way to test for malabsorption of fructose because they they did it, basically the test was testing the same group of people on the same diet over two weeks, and the results of the first test were different to the results of the second test. So they now say it's not a valid test. Um, And it's also a fairly expensive test, and it takes a lot of time. I had it done about five, six years ago, and you have to do it over three days for about three hours at a time. So it is a chunk of time out of your day, especially if you're working, and it doesn't give you the complete information. Anyway, you still have to do the low FODMAP diet to find out about the other groups, so you might as well do the diet straight off.
1: And actually, the hydrogen breath test that I was thinking of was um, using lactulose or glucose to assess for methane yes. gas and hydrogen gas.
2: Exactly. Yes, they do the the um, control tests with lactulose to see if you breathe the methane or the hydrogen. The hydrogen's more associated with diarrhea, while the methane's with the constipation. So that's your first test for three hours, um, while you breathe into a bag every. 15 minutes and they capture your breath and the second one usually is the fructose, On about a week afterwards you do that one and you do the same thing, you take this very sweet drink and then you are tested every 15 minutes up to 3 hours for that and then a week later they do the lactose test and if you're in certain countries they also test for sorbitol, they didn't do that in New Zealand but I know in the US they do
1: So, Suzanne, I wanted to ask you about uh, your journey. What's your journey been like as a lifelong IBS sufferer?
2: Well, as you mentioned, I've had it all my life. I always knew as a child that there was something different because my sisters could run into the toilet and be done in a couple of minutes and come running out, whereas because I've got IBS on the side of constipation, it would take me much longer in the toilet. But I didn't really think too much about it. I mean nobody said that much about me being different. But as I grew older it, it made life more difficult in the choices that I made. I tried to not let it control me. I still traveled a lot. I did what I wanted to do. But about 10 years ago my father died and the stress of that situation kicked it up a notch. And it got to a point where it really wasn't that bearable. So I did a lot of um, research into it. And as the Internet kind of caught up with what I needed, I started to learn about the low FODMAP diet. And at first I completely ignored it because it was so complicated. I mean, who could do a diet like that? So for about a year, I suppose, I ignored it. And then one day I decided I just had to look a little bit closer into this, And my golly gosh, they were talking about all my symptoms and how it could help with them. So that's when I did the hydrogen breath test. I actually rang up my doctor and asked about it and got a nurse, and the nurse had no clue what I was talking about. But she was a curious soul, so she did some research for me and got back to me, and surprisingly enough, the only place at that time that was doing the hydrogen breath test in New Zealand was about... Kilometre down the road from where I worked So I did the test and when I did the fructose test and took that full glass of sweet liquid I was really sick and they actually had to put me in the recovery room clinic and So I didn't really need to be breathing into a bag that kind of told me anyway that that was one of my triggers and it is one of my major triggers but then I started the diet and As I say, it was complicated, so it took a lot of time to kind of figure out how it worked because there was no real talk about the amounts and the combinations of foods back then. And so I was obviously overeating, even though I was eating the correct foods. So over a period of about a year, I suppose, I refined it. I started to work out about the other gut irritants like fiber and fat, which have to be taken into account. And I just started to feel so much better. For the, really the first time in my life and at the time just coincidentally i had a food blog about cooking so i switched that over to about being about ibs and the low fodmap diet and it just took off people were really drawn to my website and it sort of became bigger by the day and Then at a certain point, I thought, look, there's nobody helping these poor people out there because I would get 10, 20 emails a day asking me for help because they had IBS and could they try the diet, what did they have to do? And I was working full-time, and just didn't have the time to help everybody. So I made the dramatic decision to leave work and to set up as a coach for these people. And that's what I did, and it just took off from day one. I... Decided to do a group program, it filled up almost immediately, and I've never stopped since, and that was about four years ago.
1: So as you were saying, IBS really is a diagnosis of exclusion, that um, normally your health professional will run many different tests to make sure you don't have a more serious condition um, going on, like ulcerative colitis, or celiac, or, or Crohn's, or something else, but... Um, and the majority of the time, well, all of these has come back normal, and then that's usually when the patient is given the label of IBS. And uh, most patients now are quite internet savvy, as you know, Suzanne. And they're like, "Okay, IBS is a label; it still doesn't tell me what's wrong with me." And a lot of patients are also just very confused about what they should eat. They're kind of they kind of fall into two categories. One category being They just don't even know where to start. And the other category being they've tried many different diets and just have not felt any improvements. So maybe the next good place for us to journey into is the low FODMAP diet. So first off, what does FODMAP uh, stand for?
2: Yeah, FODMAP's an acronym. So the F is for fermentable. O is for oligosaccharides, which include things like onions and garlic and wheat. And the D is disaccharides, which is lactose in dairy. M is monosaccharides, which is the fructose in excess of glucose. A is and. And P is the polyols, which are the sugar alcohol, sorbitol and mannitol. And they're all carbohydrates, or sugars, because carbohydrates break down into sugars. So the diet's made up of three macronutrients, fat, protein, carbohydrate. We are looking at the carbohydrates in our food.
1: And so really it's trying to assess the carbohydrates that kind of fall into this category is being high in FODMAPs and trying to avoid them. But you had also said another thing, which I think a lot of people don't realize is, Sometimes a food can be okay in a very low amount, maybe a quarter of a cup. But if you increase it to half a cup, then it becomes disruptive to the body. And that can be really tricky for people to figure out.
2: That's right. A a lot of people these days are given a list of foods to eat and those to avoid by their health practitioners. But that's just the beginning of the story. We must have the amounts beside those foods because all fruits, all vegetables, grains, legumes, pulses, they all contain carbohydrates. So we can't cut them out of our diet like you could if you went gluten-free or lactose-free. Those are fairly simple things to figure out. So we can't cut them all out. So we have to choose which foods, which are the low FODMAP foods, as chosen um, through research by the Monash University in Australia, and avoid the high FODMAP foods. But as you mentioned, we can have half a cup of zucchini, but if you have a full cup of zucchini, you've actually pushed it into the high FODMAP territory. So the question of amounts of each food, and also combinations together in the same meal of the same FODMAPs, is a super important factor. And that's why so many people fail if they try to do the low FODMAP diet without guidance. Because they just have this list and so they sit there and they eat three carrots or they eat a full cup of sweet potato and wonder why they've got a belly ache when they're being good and following the list.
1: Yeah, and I guess the other thing that I can piggyback on top of that is even that quarter of a cup of zucchini for the majority of people will be totally fine. But there are the outliers, those few people who even that quarter of a cup is too much for them, right?
2: That can... That can be the case because this line that the Monash University has drawn across and said low FODMAP below and high FODMAP above is an average. And who of us is average? But we have to start somewhere. And so that's where we start. So with my clients, I put them on a really clean elimination diet using only low FODMAP foods in the correct amounts, in the correct combinations. And then I look to see if there are still symptoms and if there are still symptoms, we have to look at other things like, let's call them personal, personal idiosyncrasies. Things that affect them that might not affect anybody else. And it might not even have anything to do with maps. It could be eggs. It could be the salicylates in nuts, the oxalic acid in spinach. So we're looking for those things. And we're also looking, as you said, for those tolerance levels. Because fructose is one of my major triggers, Even though we can have a full banana, I would only eat half a banana. We can have 20 blueberries, I would have 10. And that's because I know that that's still a bit high for me, for that particular FODMAP. Whereas, for example, lactose, I don't react to it at all. So I can have any of that that I want to. So at the end of the day, we are all individuals, but we need somewhere to start. So we start with those low FODMAP foods.
1: And as you were saying, even people that are doing the correct low FODMAP diet, if they're not seeing results, if they're not seeing good results, it's really about um, digging deeper into the case that they could still have an underlying issue with oxalates, with salicylates, with histamine, with sulfur. It, it's, it's hard to do all on your own. And that's where having a really good coach comes in.
2: That's exactly right. Now, the majority of my clients don't have any of those other issues, probably about, still about 20%. We will find something else that they react to, Um, but less than you would think. I mean, even having a reaction to the casein and milk, the protein part, as opposed to lactose, the carbohydrate part, I've only, out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients, had a small... Percentage have a problem with casein. It is less than you think. But we do have to take that into account, that that's a possibility, that the individual who's trying it by themselves is not finding those things. That's where a good daily diary comes into play. But also, the first thing to look at is, are they doing that low FODMAP diet 100% accurately? Because even one wrong food, and you'll have symptoms... I always remember a client of mine, a farmer in England, who was doing brilliantly on the diet. He was so excited that he'd got his life back. And we started the testing. And the first test we did was honey for fructose. He had a teaspoon of honey and could hardly move all day. Because, like with me, it was one of his major triggers. One wrong food in a perfectly clean diet and he was sick all day. So you can't make one mistake. This is not a diet that you dabble in and think, okay, I'll take this out and that out and see how I go and then we'll try this. You do have to start from the um, the standpoint of a, an elimination diet, everything out. And then you start to build to create your own personal diet. But that's the first thing you look at if the diet seems to be not working. Am I doing this accurately? If you're not sure, go and get some help.
1: And Suzanne, it's good that you just happened to mention the honey because I know there's, depending on where you source the honey, that there can be different concentrations of fructose-related in relation to glucose, and that can trigger um, symptoms. So maybe some people will do much better on uh, clover honey than, mm-hmm. than, a, than a different kind of honey. It, but it's tricky.
2: It is tricky with honey. Most honey has fructose at a higher percentage than glucose, and that's where the issue is. It's that excess fructose that doesn't get absorbed and goes down into the bowel and ferments. Um, Clover honey in particular is one where the percentage is pretty much even and you might get away with it. Um, The majority of the other ones are not great. But a good fructose one to test with actually is mango, which we know is high in fructose and it has no other FODMAPs in it at all. So we are doing a pure test for fructose with that. So the foods that you choose for your testing are quite crucial as well.
1: Suzanne, what are your most favorite resources um, that you use or can recommend websites, etc., for people that are out there that are looking for accurate information on these foods that are considered low FODMAP or high FODMAP or in between moderate?
2: Well, obviously, we use the Monash University because that's where the diet was created, where the major research is still continuing today into the FODMAP content of different foods, and they have their Monash University phone app, which is absolutely crucial to have. They also have a little booklet that you can purchase for around about 10 Australian dollars, and that's really useful in that it has the foods in graph form, so you can see what FODMAPs are in each food all kind of laid out in a graph. So definitely the Monash University and they have a blog. Um, There are two other dietitians in the U.S. who have been doing this for a long time and who specialize in the low FODMAP diet, and they, of course, are perfect sources of information, and that's Kate Scarlata and Patsy Katsos. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, but it's C-A-T-S-O-S. And those are the three sites that I would recommend and that I rely on.
1: So then I guess the the next question that I have, you know, I'm kind of – I'm kind of, you know, going inside the listener's head and what would the listener want to know. Okay. How do, people leave a normal, how do people lead a normal social life that have IBS and need to follow the low FODMAP diet? What do you recommend?
2: Well, I lead a normal um, social life and I travel a lot as well. So you do have to put strategies in place. We can't pretend that we are normal. We have IBS. There's no cure for it. But if we stay on an accurate low FODMAP diet, the one that we've expanded and created for ourselves, then we can live a pretty normal life. And the the fact that you're living without symptoms is enormous incentive to stay on it. But there are certain things I put into place. For example, if I'm going to be going out to a restaurant, I do a little bit of homework. I look it up online. I look at the menu. I choose three or four things that I think are likely to be possible that don't have the words like garlic in them, and then I bring up the restaurant and I ask to talk to the chef. Don't talk to anybody else. They won't know. Talk to the chef and just have a discussion around those choices that you've made and see what he recommends. Often they will say... Don't worry about it. When you get to the restaurant, I'll come out and talk to you, and we'll sort something for you. I have never yet had anybody turn me down with that, and I've never had trouble in a restaurant either. Now, when I travel, um, I take a laminated card with me, just a small postcard size, and I put put on it in the language of the country, my major triggers. So it depends what yours are. For me, I put no garlic, no onions. There are four things that can be hidden in food. The wheat, our dairy, so the lactose, wheat and onions. Often you don't see them on the plate. Everything else, basically, you see on the plate and can avoid, or you see it written on the menu. So you would, if you have a problem with all of those, and I hope you wouldn't once you've done the testing, you'd put... Lactose-free, onion-free, garlic-free, and put gluten-free. Even though that's not accurate for us, it's what the public understand Because gluten is the protein part of wheat, and our problem is the fructans, the carbohydrate part of wheat. But if you put fructan-free, nobody will know what you're talking about. So put those four things. But if you've found, like me, that I have no problem with lactose, leave that off. And for the wheat, I can have a kind of a half a serving, So I don't put that on my list. We don't want to confuse people. So I go around the world with a card that says lactose-free and, sorry, um, onion-free and garlic-free in all the countries' languages that I go to. And that works well. You get a few giggles, but at least you stay safe.
1: And besides talking to the chef and traveling with your card in other languages, which I think are brilliant, um, do you have any other recommendations or, or tips for people that are frequent travelers?
2: When traveling on the airplane, for example, I don't suggest necessarily asking for a gluten-free meal because uh, that will just mean that possibly the bread is gluten-free. That doesn't mean it's low FODMAP necessarily. Remember that gluten-free does not equate low FODMAP at all. In fact, gluten-free foods can contain high FODMAP uh, ingredients like the soya flowers, almond meal, coconut flour, those things, which are all high FODMAP. I, If you're travelling with somebody in particular, what I do is that my husband and I, because there's normally two choices, choose a different one each, I eat off the plates what I can and he eats the rest. I also always, always take low FODMAP snack bars with me wherever I go. I'm about to, in, well, September, Um, go on a trip through China, Mongolia, and Russia. And I'm collecting my low FODMAP bars, so I'll have one, at least one for each day that I'm away. And while while I'm at it, I will just mention the FODY snack bars, F-O-D-Y. They sent me a great big pack. Of them which is fantastic And I really enjoy them That's the important thing But there are other people out there now Who are doing the low FODMAP snack bars But do stick to those who are doing low FODMAP Don't go for gluten free as I mentioned That might not be low FODMAP So take your snacks With you When I stay in hotels when I'm travelling I go to the, the breakfast bar Which is normally like a buffet And there's always something there you can have That's low FODMAP and just scrambled eggs, there'll be some um, fruit that you can eat, etc. But there's also what I do is I take little squares of tin foil from New Zealand when I travel and I take one of those in my bag for each breakfast and I put something in there that I can eat for my morning snack from the breakfast bar and I wrap it up in tin foil and put it in my handbag. So that takes care of my morning snack. Then I'll have a snack bar for my afternoon snack. Normally, lunch and dinner are in the cafe or a restaurant, and that's where I utilise the same uh, strategies that I mentioned before.
1: Suzanne, so let's switch gears and think about the long-term plan for patients with IBS. So, with the clients that you've worked with, do they all have to be on the low FODMAP, uh, do they all have to be on the low-FODMAP diet forever? Do certain patients? Are they able to have more wiggle room on the low FODMAP diet? All right, so
2: you start with the elimination diet, and nobody stays on that, and we shouldn't stay on that. Unfortunately, a lot of people do seem to because they don't understand that on the elimination diet, you've taken out a lot of the prebiotics from the diet, and the prebiotics are what balance the gut bacteria so you might start to feel better on the elimination diet if you're doing it accurately, but if you stay on it too long, you could reverse that as the gut bacteria get out of whack. So the Monash University advises us not to stay on it for longer than six weeks. So if my clients, I keep them on it for about three weeks to get them symptom-free, then we launch into the reintroduction stage, which is when you're testing food groups and foods to see what your major triggers are, minor triggers, and what doesn't trigger at all? I've never yet had a client who has a problem with all of the FODMAP groups. So we're able to add foods and whole groups back in again to create a much more expanded diet. And that will create a final diet, which is different for each person. And that's your diet for life. That's what you've got to stay on. There's not enough research or enough time um, since we've discovered the diet for there to be any information about whether over time that could change. Uh, There's no harm every six months in maybe retesting foods, if you want to, to see if anything changes or not. But we have IBS for life, and what we malabsorb is possibly now for life. But certainly, every six months, if you want, retest and see if something has changed. And eventually, of course, there will be enough information for the the Monash University or any other research center to be able to advise us on that.
1: Suzanne, we've spoken about many things today, and this is a big topic to try and cover in one podcast. Um, so in the few minutes that remain, I wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you think is important for our listeners to know about this subject.
2: The only other thing that we haven't mentioned is that the low format diet is the base that you need for sorting your IBS symptoms, but it's not everything. We do need to look at other gut irritants, uh, obvious ones like alcohol and caffeine, but also fibre and fat are gut irritants for those of us with IBS. And we can't cut them out. They're essential to the diet. But we all have our own fine line with them. If we tip over that line, we'll get symptoms So we have to push up against the line to get as much fiber and fat as we can tolerate without tipping over. And that will be individual for everybody, especially if you've got IBS with constipation. You must get those levels right, or you will continue with the constipation. People with IBS with diarrhea get results really quickly on the low FODMAP diet. Within a few days, their symptoms can be gone. With constipation, it's... Like you have to almost layer a diet on top of it in which you're gradually increasing your fiber to get to the right level to create really um, consistent stalls that on the Bristol stool chart are around a number three or a four. So you've got to work that over about two weeks it would take to build your fiber levels to get there. So we must not forget those other gut Irritance and the other aspect is lifestyle. We know that we have a faulty brain to gut connection and That we have a hypersensitive gut and it overreacts to everything not just the food that's put in it But also distress lack of sleep lack of exercise So you have to focus also on that whole lifestyle thing Um, There's many puzzle pieces that come together to get you symptom free and the FODMAP diet is the foundation piece, but there are other things you have to look at.
1: Suzanne, how do you and your website help people with with IBS, and where can our audience find out more information about all this?
2: So my website is strandsofmylife.com, and it has hundreds of low FODMAP recipes, articles, videos on IBS and the low FODMAP diet, and... That's all completely free information there for anybody. I also have a coaching service, a one-to-one, six-week program. I have a self-study program for those who want to do it by themselves. And I also have a customized meal plan service where I create a week's worth of meal plans based on a questionnaire that's filled out. But today I'd like to give your listeners a gift of an accurate, up-to-date food chart for the low FODMAP diet with the amounts. And if they go to www.strandsofmylife.com slash carri, C-A-R-R-I for a wonderful hostess, then they will be able to download a free food chart.
1: That's fantastic, Suzanne. Thank you for being so generous with that. And for the listeners out there, I'll make sure to put um, all of those links in the podcast uh, show notes on, uh, on our website so that you can easily access information about this and you can easily find Suzanne. Suzanne, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Carrie. It's been lovely to be able to talk to you, and I hope that's been helpful for your listeners.
1: All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Suzanne Perizzini, and I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today, and I'd like to invite, like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drisga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone.